Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is seemingly the only person affiliated with the New York Rangers that wasn't up for arbitration this summer. It's uh, it's Shayna Goldman. Shayna, what's going on? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. Um, you know, it seems obviously the New York Rangers playing in a big market. Uh, there's a lot of mainstream attention to them, but I do feel like for whatever reason, um, I don't know if this is a popular sentiment or not, but at least from my perspective, I think they kind of have the most low key, uh, compelling situation brewing in the league right now. You know, it, I'm not sure what the timeline is for this rebuild and what the next handful of years are going to look for them, but just the way they've sort of the level of transparency and the decisiveness, starting with that letter they sent out before the trade deadline and then the moves they've made and sort of how they operated this summer. Um, it must be a pretty interesting time for you covering a team like this because there is so much, um, you know, turnover and movement, but it also feels like it's such a fluid situation that, you know, whether it's a year or two from now, this roster could look so vastly different. Yeah, it's, it's definitely excited, exciting. And it was a long time coming for them to do this. And I think it was so surprising that not only they did it, but they were actually transparent about it because that's not the Rangers. I mean, they're one of the few teams that you never even find out um, contract values from still. Uh, so to see them come out and acknowledge their shortcomings while they weren't completely out of the playoff race, they could have, you know, pushed for a wild card spot. They could have tried to go in, you know, the early rounds and probably be eliminated early and be in the same spot. They were a few years, the past few years. And they realized we're not there yet. We're going to do whatever it takes to get there. And this is how we're doing it. But I, as patient as I think they'll be, I don't think it'll be like a Winnipeg Jets rebuild. I mean, it's still the Rangers, and you still have Henrik Lundqvist. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we'll, we'll get into Lundqvist a lot um, a bit later on. But the whole idea of um, kind of rebuilding or retooling or however you want to phrase it and sort of this idea of a team that was once formerly great sort of kind of turning back the clock a little bit, I guess, and sort of starting from scratch um, – you know, especially in a market like New York, where there's so much else going on, and I feel like there might be some of that external pressure to feel the competitive team and drop get get people's attention. Um, it's I don't know. Do you feel like that is uh, there is 
kind of added credence to that? Or do you think that, because I experienced it a lot here in Vancouver and, and the discourse around the Canucks over the past handful of years is, you know, ownership and, and the managerial group has been very steadfast in their opinion that, you know, the fans in Vancouver don't have the appetite or the patience to stick around for a rebuild. And if a team isn't competitive for a few years and is constantly picking at the top of the draft, uh, fans are going to kind of tune out. And I, I really think sometimes that can be a bit overblown. I think there's certainly going to be a segment of the fan base that, you know, is going to get bored and check out and might come back eventually, or you might not, you might lose them as fans for life. But I think for the most part, this kind of more informed, intelligent fans, as long as there is that type of blueprint or plan or kind of, they have confidence that the managerial group is kind of, you know, doing something as opposed to just going back and forth and without any sort of coherent plan. I feel like that's enough to appease a lot of fans, at least for a couple of years. Yeah, I think, I think when you, not to insult them, but I think when you have the Islanders in close range also, it, it helps because no matter what the Rangers are doing, so many think that they're the stable team in New York and that's the way it is. And if you expand New York, you can look at Buffalo too. So you can't complain and you did have all these years. But for the more educated fans, I think it was more of why wasn't this done sooner? Because you could look at 2015-16. They were a team that was, they were good. They looked like, you know, they would be in the playoff mix, but they didn't look like true contenders. And I think making it to the cup final in 2014 raised the stakes. And after 14-15, they made so many moves to keep pushing for contention when they could have taken a step back and built up a little bit better. So two years from then, they would have been more competitive. Mm-hmm. But I think this is what everyone's wanted. And when Jeff Gorton took over, it was, it's time for a change. It's time to not go after marquee names that are past their prime. It's time to look and replenish what was lost. And he made a couple moves in the beginning that it was like, okay, that's not Glenn, uh, that's, that's not Jeff Gorton. That's a Glenn Sather move, like the Eric Stahl trade. And everyone was asking for these moves that were more, that would become Gorton's signature. And when we started getting them, as much as it hurt to see a player like, McDonough on his way out or JT Miller I know a lot of fans were upset about it was for the right reason and it's to get somewhere that they actually will be good and it it will be like a sustainable success which they just didn't have right yeah so I I guess what's the time that Gordon took over ahead of the 2015-16 season right I feel like it was that summer yeah yeah, I mean, so obviously, and you know, he was around as Sather's right-hand man prior to that, and it's kind of tricky to always figure out how to divvy up the responsibility for some of the moves that backfire um, in hindsight. And, you know, and a great example of this is I remember when the Capitals uh, replaced George McPhee with his assistant GM, Brian McClellan. Uh, it was I was one of the people that was kind of critical of that. And I was wondering, well, you know, if you're replacing this GM who steered this franchise down the wrong path, uh, having someone who was also kind of a culprit to that and also at least at least a bystander to it might not be the best way to run your business, but obviously that's worked out uh, just fine for the Capitals. And, you know, for the most part, um, it does feel like Gordon has gotten his footing a little bit here. I guess the one big flaw in the ointment so far is the four-year deal he handed out to Brendan Smith, and I can't even honestly fault him too much for that because... I wouldn't. I was a fan of the player and, and, and I was okay with the deal at the time. And I just honestly can't believe how quickly things have went off the rails there with, with the player and the team involved. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think anyone expected it, even when he got up to the slow start to be that bad. And I, I still think it could have been handled better. And I think that it's not, you saw like glimpses of the player that Brendan Smith was the year before. And I don't know how much he was put in the you know, situation to succeed. And when you see how bad the rest of the defense was, it's a little hard to just fault him the onus on him was not being in shape. Right, and right. when he was scratched for, I think it was a string of 
seven games when they were on that winning streak. It was after um, October 31st when they beat Vegas. He was scratched in the third period. He was scratched for all those games, and it's as much as you want him to get back in shape, he's not playing either. And you can train all you want, but you're not in a game setting. It's not helping. Yeah, yeah, it is one of those. Um, it just kind of feels like a lost season. I wonder if what's going to look like heading into next year and kind of starting with a clean slate. But uh, you know, back to the point about Gordon and Sather, it's you know, there's still um, a few things left on the books. I was looking at their the cap structure and sort of you know their financial outlook, and it's remarkable to me that you know the Dan Girardi uh, six year thirty three million dollars stink bomb is still uh, they're going to feel that for a while, both directly because of the cap. I believe it's like still over three million per season for the next year or two. But even beyond that, sort of the decision what it represented to pay Dan Girardi instead of Anton Strauman and letting him go, and then you get into the Mark Stahl. So it's it's I'm willing to give uh, Gordon you know maybe a bit of a longer leash, and it might be easier for me to say because I'm a bit removed from the situation and I'm obviously not a fan of the team but it does feel like you know this is going to take um some time for them to kind of dig out of this hole and replenish the pipeline and rebuild from scratch because um you know the previous regime obviously did dig themselves a bit of a hole yeah yeah they definitely dug themselves a hole and like you said the danger already contract then it looked bad at the time they still went for it it came down to Girardi or Callahan and it was a difficult decision, but it was still, you go Callahan and Strawman versus Girardi. They went the opposite way, and you see how it worked out for Tampa. And that Callahan contract would have hurt no matter what, but you would have had Strawman, hopefully with McDonough, who were really great together in the few chances they got. And the stall contract, it looks terrible now. It didn't look great then, but I don't think anyone could have anticipated his career going this off the rails. And, and I have to think so much of it is because of the injuries. Right. Yeah. But it's, of course, yeah, there's obviously a factor to it and, and how they sort of finagle that or maneuver it in the next couple of years to come is going to be fascinating because obviously whenever a player has that sort of name value still and, and is pay, getting paid as much as he has, you kind of feel incentivized to play him up further in the lineup. And we've seen, although he did have, you know, a somewhat respectable, especially stretches last season for the most part, um, you know, he'd be obviously much better off playing further down in the lineup. And I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see, you know, with this new coaching staff coming in with a fresh set of eyes and no real, you know, past allegiances involved or, or favorites, um, how that dynamic changes and whether, you know, some of the complaints we've had about uh, Alan Vigneault and, and how he used younger players and sort of, you know, the, the prototypical grittier types that he seemed to favor and give an exceptional amount of minutes to whether that changes and whether, you know, the pendulum finally swings and the Rangers are all of a sudden using some of these younger guys that we've all been clamoring for them to use more. Yeah. I, I have to think that's the case. And I, I know with Quinn, um, he does know some of these players like Kevin Shattenkirk, but even when he knew Shattenkirk and was coaching him at Lake Erie after he was the assistant at Boston University, like he wasn't afraid to scratch them if that's what it took. So it's nice to see that going into it already. Like he may be familiar with players, but whatever it's going to take to make them the best team, it seems like he's more willing to do. Because like you said, that was exactly the problem. And it really was from the start, but it wasn't as obvious, I guess, at the start because it was a veteran group that he came into. Right, yeah, there were there was only so many players for him to uh, to bump down the lineup and bench whenever they made a mistake. I, I, pr- I promised myself that um, I wasn't going to devote any uh, kind of time of consequence on this podcast to Pavel Buchnevich because I've talked about him so much on the show <laughs> and my thoughts are very uh, clear on that. And I think Rangers fans and everyone that's listened to the show in the past knows. So go back and listen to 
any number of episodes where I sing his praises and wonder why Ellen Vigneault's playing him on the fourth line and why he's not playing constantly attached to Mika Zibanejad's hip as a playmaker and so on and so forth. So uh, that's my Butch Never spiel. But, you know, with Quinn, um, I had Sean Shapiro on last week and we were talking about the Dallas Stars and it's kind of a similar um, thing where, you know, you had an established NHL coach who we knew a lot about and we knew his tendencies being replaced by uh, a head coach coming from the NCAA ranks that, while even though they're experienced and have been around the game for a long time, don't have an NHL track record for us to point to as sort of proof of how this is going to turn out or what they're going to be like behind the bench. Um you know, I know you've written about Quinn a lot in the past, and you've uh, made mention of the fact that, you know, he's going to play an up-tempo style, there's going to be a lot of puck possession involved, hopefully, and that the defense in particular, which uh, was a big, you know, big talking point, a big sore spot under Ellie Mignot, is going to be kind of much more opened up to freelance and maybe activate themselves a bit more. Um Sort of what are you expecting from that change? Because obviously with under Alain Vigneault, uh, you know, with a counterattacking style and sort of it, it did feel like it was a bit outdated and it felt like, you know, if Lundqvist wasn't going to be standing on his head, they'd be in big time trouble. And we saw that obviously happen as last year progressed. Are you expecting um, discernible changes, at least out of the gate from from Quinn? Or do you think it's going to be a bit more of a gradual response? I can see changes like right out the gate with Quinn because changes had to come. It, it wasn't something that you could really wait on. It, it's like jump into it, get with it, figure out the players and figure out the systems and, and start teaching them. Like you you have time this season because no one expects you to be particularly uh, competitive, but there were so many problems that have to be fixed. And I think when you go from the last coaching change, you had Tortorella that was a defense-first system and then Vigneault, who it seemed like was an offense-first system. So there was a huge adjustment period for that. And the problems did come up pretty easily and they just spiraled out over the years, you know, with fitting uh, square pegs into round holes, like the entire time with guys like Girardi from the start, you saw it in the 2014 playoffs, like especially, but with Quinn, he's coming in and it's, it's supposed to be up-tempo to up-tempo, which Vigneault system was supposed to be. But I think the biggest problem last season was, there was definitely some disconnect between the coaches and the players because you had three different assistant coaches over five years in Ulf Samuelson, Jeff Bukaboom, and then Lindy Ruff. And they followed the same system year after year, and Ruff of all coaches should have been familiar with it. But it just seems like there was that missing communication that that helped the players execute everything because it just fell apart in such a way that I don't think anyone anticipated. Uh, I think we could have expected it to be worse in years past, even though on paper the defense was better but just not to that extent. This year, it's a coach who's known for his communication. You have an assistant like Greg Brown, who also is with, uh, who is with Boston College. So you have two college coaches coming in, and they know how to implement systems pretty quickly and teach their players it because it it's changes so much throughout the college landscape. And, you know, it's a revolving door of players. So I would expect them to know of all coaches how to jump in and start teaching the players their system in their ways. And Lindy Ruff is there. And I think it's similar to the situation with Tampa when Cooper came in. They want an assistant with NHL experience. And you have that in Ruff. I just don't know how much of the decision-making process he's going to be a part of with the defense because uh, his decisions last season were questionable. And his team's going back to, I think, 2012 or 2013 um, in shots against and expected goals against were in the bottom 10 of the league until last year when they were up to 31. I 
don't know how much, you know, how much rain they want to give him, but also he's a respected name. So I don't know how much is, of that's going to affect it either. Right. But with guys like Quinn and Brown, you'll definitely see it where they're activating the defense and they're not just going up for a single rush and it's not just a one dimensional offense. And ideally they're coming back and covering up the slot and trying to suppress pa- passing lanes and all of that. So it isn't just Henrik Lundqvist. I wouldn't be surprised about first. It's a lot of Henrik Lundqvist, but then they kind of figure it out, find their footing and can give him some relief, which I'm sure he'll get from a backup playing more next year as well, because last year he started, I think he started 13 straight by like mid-December at one point, and he was on pace to play like 70 games. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely north of 60, and obviously at this point of his career, that was that was a bit extreme. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of things to unpack there. I think that... You know, I think Rangers fans, for the most part, um, you trying to judge their pulse on online. It felt like uh, you know this change behind the bench was a long time coming and something that desperately needed to happen. And you know, I was looking at because uh, El Mino completed his fifth season with the Rangers last year. Um, I'm kind of looking at fascinated by the shelf life of coaches and sort of how long they're tenured and when that message kind of wears thin or whether you know something has to give. And it's remarkable right now. I'm going to blow your mind. There's Peter Laviolette, John Cooper, Paul Maurice, and Joel Quenville. So those four are the only coaches who um, have been with their team for more than four seasons right now. So it just kind of shows you how much of a changing landscape it is at that, at that position where whether it's because of the message or the system or because you know it's easier to fire the coach if you're the GM and sort of point to that as a reason for for what went wrong and how things are going to change it feels like coaches these days you you have that like two to four year window and after that uh something's got to give and obviously for the Rangers um that's what happened this summer yeah something definitely gave and it, it could have given a couple of years ago too um because there were issues that had you pointed them out from the start maybe you could have fixed them and they they could have gotten him more mobile defensemen from the start because I do think that was an issue and keeping Girardi like right there highlights it versus getting rid of Strawman or adding Dan Boyle, who yes, was offensive, but didn't, wasn't the best skater at that age. Um, and last year was the year that it, it should have given him the chance to prove like, okay, I have the personnel now I can, I can make my system work. I can adjust it to these players if necessary, but I have the players to make it work for maybe the first time in my tenure and it, it it was as bad as humanly possible. So it was like, uh, that turns out as bad as humanly possible. I, I it could probably be a bit worse, but no, it was it was it was bad. It was de- and especially I mean, like on a Ranger scale for for Henrik Lundqvist, it was probably like the, you've never seen him yelling at coaches. He was yelling at Lindy Ruff. You saw some games too. So it was like for him, it was like that's got to be a breaking point. Oh, no. And I know it's, uh, you know, he's a very passionate guy, obviously. And, and all the memes online of, uh, of him freaking out and pushing the, 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 the goal off the goalpost and all that is, is one thing, but I, I believe it was like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was like 12 or 13 times last season. He faced like 40 plus shots. And it felt like yep. last year really was the year where it hit that tipping point. And it was like, okay, they, something, something needs to happen in front of him because, uh, this is just unacceptable. And I think that, you know, Jeff Gordon and, and, and his staff seem to be aware of that. It, it feels like, you know, towards the end of last year, they're just kind of p- playing out the string and they were going to address all that this summer. And you saw that with, um, you know, the moves they made in terms of the contracts they gave out to retaining their players. It, it does feel like they are viewing 2018 19 as a bit of a, 
you know, temporary one-year testing ground or proving ground where they really want to evaluate how some of these guys look in a different system where they're maybe actually being played to utilize their skills and give it, and put in a position to succeed because when things go as poorly as they did last year and we see this time and time again with, you know, the worst teams in the league, it becomes really tricky to evaluate who's at fault and whether players are really as bad as their underlying numbers look just because everything around them was kind of messed up. So I'm going to be very fascinated to see how that translates into this coming season and whether, you know, some of those young guys, and we'll get into them more here, um, are able to reverse course and maybe take a step up in production just purely because they're being utilized in a different manner. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, like you said, Gorton was noticing it. I think you could even say two, uh, sorry, a full year ago, he was noticing it when he started adding defensemen that he was signing from like the college ranks, like Neil Pionk. And um, it, I think John Gilmore was added a year before that. And it was like, let's start replenishing it. We don't have the draft picks, but we're replenishing it in a way that these guys are closer to being ready and stepping in. And then, of course, last summer, it was extending Smith, adding Shattenkirk, trading for D'Angelo. And really strengthening that right side that needed it um, after the Girardi uh, buyout, after having Nick Holden on his offside for the entire season, which he ended up doing again. But it, it, it seemed like he acknowledged every problem except for on the coaching staff. And then you saw such a reversal this year with the fresh approach, which you went with Lindy Ruff, which is maybe the opposite of a fresh approach the year before. Yeah, no, definitely. And okay, so let's let's talk about the summer they've had. Um, so it seems, oh man, there's, there's such a long laundry list of guys who uh, who got contracts. So yeah, it's Kevin Hayes. Obviously, got the one year deal, um, and then Ryan Spooner, Vlad Nemestikov, and Jimmy VC all got two years. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And then Brady Shea obviously got his long term extension, and we'll get into Shea in a second here. But I really do feel for out of that group. Uh, Nemesnikov, I just wonder how much money the uh, deadline day trade, you know, cost him ultimately. Uh, you yeah. know, obviously he'll have this two-year deal, and then if he performs well, he'll be able to cash in. But if you just look at what was going on in the first half of the year, where you know he had 20 goals in 62 games, he was lighting it up on the power play, playing on the top unit with Stamkos and Kucherov, and just watching those games, it really felt like. He wasn't necessarily just a, you know, a convenient bystander either or a passenger with those guys. Like he was helping carry the puck into the zone. He was really good around the net in tight spaces and felt like it was a very complimentary skill set. And then he goes to the Rangers and basically, you know, his production completely plummets. He has two goals in 19 games. He's not doing anything on the power play. And JT Miller steps into his spot. Uh, you know, performs handsomely, winds up getting paid. I made $26 million. And, yeah. you know, it, it, obviously JT Miller himself has a bit of a longer track record at this level and it's a different circumstance, but it really does feel like out of all of the things that happened to Mesnikov was kind of the guy who was, who was the biggest loser out of the group. Yeah. And it's surprising to me too, that they were willing to trade away Mesnikov and didn't want to extend him to a lengthy deal. And then gave that deal to Miller who he was good with, um, with, Stamkos and Kucherov and who wouldn't be but he wasn't even great in the playoffs there and that was a that was one thing with the Rangers he wasn't as great with the Rangers he wasn't as consistent and I think a lot of it did have to do with the coaching the usage um he was used last year with Grabner and Hayes for most of the year on the third line taking these shifts that a lot of the time did start in the defensive zone and the idea was to get Grabner the puck and let him skate so it's interesting to me that they felt Miller's more of the guy than Domestikov, when Domestikov seems like the player that does all the little things right. And once you gave him teammates that were that capable, 
he was able to show things that no one saw throughout his NHL career. And then he came to New York and yeah, it, it wasn't good. I know it was said after that he had a shoulder injury, which is why he didn't go to the world championship, but even still he was in the lineup. So I, he was healthy enough to play. And I mean, injury management was a thing last year that there were a lot of decisions that didn't make sense with the Rangers, like allowing Shattenkirk to play on one knee and allowing Henrik to play injured. They said he had like knee and hip issues after the year and Zuccarello as well. But with Nemesnikov, he was healthy enough to play, but was it that he wasn't healthy enough to play in your top six or you just didn't want him to? Because you can't expect him to succeed when you're giving him line mates like Cody McLeod. And at times it was Buchnevich and McLeod, but it, it still it was like an anchor on the line that it, it really didn't work out. But the two-year bridge deal, I'm a little surprised that him and Nemestikov both got them. I honestly thought one would be traded at the draft, if not right after. But I guess with this strategy, it's one or both could be moved at the deadline this year, if need be. And you're giving a team more than just half a season. You're giving them a year and a half's worth of a player that hopefully can show just how capable they are. And Nemestikov's the one that I guess has something to prove that he can still do it away from Stamkos and Kucherov. But I don't think the Rangers should have expected that Nemestikov either way because he wouldn't be playing alongside players that great here no matter what. No, yeah, that's definitely true. I think, you know, the probably the line of thinking between, but behind um, not moving into those guys at the draft and sort of retaining them and bringing it back and hoping, as we alluded to, that things will be different under a new coach and a new system is, it felt like probably their stock was so low at this point that you'd be really selling low and maybe with that two-year term, it gives you a bit of wiggle room where you can bring them back, start fresh this season, and if they perform, then, you know, they're not under, they're not on the books for a long time either not not long term but you can still either retain them or trade them so it gives you some flexibility i think that that's kind of been the the uniting theme here amongst all those names uh beyond brady shea of course is that um there's going to be a lot of moving parts here and and we saw last year's trade deadline with all the trades they made and shuffling out the veteran players and bringing in picks and prospects it it I think there's going to be a bit of a revolving door, and I think that's just something that we have to kind of come to terms with. And especially with with Kevin Hayes, it felt like as soon as that one year deal came out, it and they can't even really, um, you know, they can't come to terms on an, an extension until January first, I believe. It, it does feel like mm-hmm. he's going to be one of those prime um, out of the bunch, the the prime trade deadline kind of trade fodder or trade bait um, leading up to the deadline. Yeah, I the. The one-year deal for Hayes, once it was announced, uh, I think Larry Brooks was the first to report it, and it was right after Shea's extension was announced. Um, it, it was really surprising because it, it felt like for the for the last two years since they were both bridge-dealed um, by Gorton, it was going to be Miller or Hayes. And the question was, well, which one would you want? And it was the answer was clearly Hayes. He he's more versatile. He's asked. He's done everything he's been asked to do. He can take on those minutes in the defensive zone. He can penalty kill. You put him on the power play, he's effective. It's questionable why he didn't get more time there in the first place. But it seemed like he did everything that the Rangers wanted him to do since since he joined the team because he wasn't even a center when he when he joined. He was a right winger. So to see that it went, oh, maybe Kevin Hayes isn't part of the future either was a little bit surprising, even though it wouldn't completely surprise me if they came to a longer term deal because they may say, let's see what you do under Quinn. Let's see what you do in a more offensive role. And let's see if you do all of a sudden put up points that we were expecting. To which his response could have easily been, how could you expect me to put points on this team and this role and all of that? So if he can prove it, there's a chance they, they agree to a deal. But at that point, he's going to be 27 when, the, um, when this year ends. 
And then you're extending him into his 30s. And they didn't want that with Derek Stepan. Why are they going to want that with Kevin Hayes, who's not even their first line center? And why do you want that when you have Zibanejad signed through 2021? And then you have Heedle, uh, who could play center, Anderson, and Brett Howden. So it kind of seems like it's squeezing him out in a way. And I can see why he wouldn't want a longer-term deal unless it had trade protection, because he could be he could be thinking he could be out in a year even if he signs a deal. So it makes sense on both sides why they were hesitant for a long-term deal. It makes sense on both sides why they want the short-term deal. But yeah, it, it's like a ticking clock now. When is its time going to end here? Yeah, I'm still I'm still a believer in Kevin Hayes. I think obviously you know people that might have soured on him a little bit, and he hasn't necessarily. Um, well, I guess that's not even, not even fair. I think he's pr- produced, you know, perfectly reasonably based on how he was being used and who he was playing with and sort of how he was being yo-yoed around uh, by the coaching staff. But obviously, uh, whenever you see a player who's kind of capable of the physical feats that he is, and sometimes he just looks so dominant out there as a playmaker, you can sound kind of, it's a bit unfair to the player himself. It's a bit of a blessing and a curse because when you have that type of a skill set, if you don't do it on a consistent basis um, and really take that next step and become a star, people are going to be left wanting more and feel a bit disappointed and feel like you, you're either a bust or, or, or yeah, you're not living up to the potential, but he's still a perfectly effective player. Maybe you just might need to moderate um, your expectations a little bit, but I do feel like um, with this new coach in place, if he's, put in a more offensively reliant role um he could definitely put up the numbers and come the trade deadline i could imagine him fetching a nice little return for the rangers if they do decide that um they don't want to go long term with him and he's going to be one of these um expendable pieces yeah and i think it also will depend if he can switch back to the wing or maybe if nemestikov and spooner are easily you know more easy to trade and they get the returns that they want and it, it could go for the same with Matt Zuccarello, too. If they decide Zuccarello is being traded at the deadline, maybe they do want to keep some players because you don't want to get rid of every single piece you have. But on the other hand, they may feel, we can keep Matt Zuccarello, we can keep him on our penalty kill and in our middle six, we really don't need you, then, you know, trading would be a better option for them. Yeah, no, it would. And and if they do decide to to trade Hayes, he's going to join the list of guys like Zuccarello and maybe some of those other guys with, with the extra year on their contract that we mentioned that are going to become a bit expendable and become trade, trade pieces for them to dangle. And, you know, that's something that I really, um, I was a big fan of how they operated last year in terms of extracting value and, and getting a bunch of assets back. And especially when it comes to draft capital, um, you know, we're going to talk about Brady Shea here in a second, but he went 28th overall in 2012, and then this team went four years without a first-round pick. And in those years, their their first selections were 65th, 59th, 41st, and 81st. And that's kind of started really show. And obviously, with Elan Vigneault in place, we, we mentioned that you know it was a bit of more of a veteran group, and they were getting some college free agents, so maybe they were able to cover up some of those flaws a little bit. But eventually, if you're not building out your system and devoting a lot of assets to to replenishing their prospect pipeline, it will catch up to you. And and you know, to their credit, to, to Jeff Gordon's credit, um, you know what they had five first round picks over the past two years. Uh, they brought in guys like Heedle and, and Leah Anderson and, and, and Krasov and Keandre Miller and guys I'm really um, excited about that have a lot of potential and a lot of um, offensive skills they can contribute, assuming they develop well over the coming years. So, you know, with that and some of the picks they already have in place, like it, it at least they're moving in the right direction. And, um, 
you know, I was I was talking to the fine folks over there at uh, at Blue Banter who do their annual prospect ranking set, and uh, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that out of the top ten that they ranked for the Rangers prospects, nine of them came into the system over the past fourteen months or so, which kind of really mm-hmm. it, it's both uh, a compliment to what they've been able to accomplish over the past two drafts, but also a testament to how barren things were before that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, forty prospects this year, and and you just see how different it is last year it was obviously hi- highlighted by Hedl and Anderson and this year they're going to be up there as well but there there are new names to it and and there's actual actually something to be excited for and there's a future to look forward to because every everything with the over the years has been the short term and the win now and maybe a year out you can look at but you didn't have this you know for years this was what was moved to become you know to stay good for right now so it's definitely exciting and Names like Heedle and Anderson and Kratzoff, like there's so much to be excited about from a, a fan perspective, from a team's perspective, because you can't do this without those picks. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, on the Brady Shea extension? I know you wrote about um, you know the pros and cons of kind of going the bridge deal route versus signing long term. How do you, how do you feel about the ultimate decision they settled on with them? I think of. Of their players, he was the most important to not bridge deal because I was concerned about how much it would cost afterwards. And it, there's a lot of uncertainty on this defense. You have, uh, I'm trying to think, you have Shattenkirk, Stahl, and Smith signed for the next three years. And then other than that, there, there's no one. And they have prospects that are going to be joining. And obviously, Stahl won't be a part of it long term. You'll have to replace him. But you didn't want to have to add shade to your list. And if you bridge him for two years and then sign him for a really expensive contract after that, it, it just wouldn't have made sense if you thought he could be a part of your future right now, which they, they clearly did. I do think the money's a little bit higher than expected. Um, I anticipated more to be like 4.5, maybe 4.8. I didn't think they'd go 5.25, but I'm not complaining because it's, it's a lower percentage of the cap hit. I know that's, the argument a lot of people use, like I think it's a lower percentage than what McDonough's was. And he has these skills. He, you've seen it at the NHL level. You've seen it um, at World Juniors and the World Championship and all that. I don't know how much we saw it at college because the usage there was a little bit funky. And he, I think at the University of Minnesota, it was if you didn't have clear offensive talents, it was don't bother and just kind of be more cautious and, and more careful. So his first season, you got to see uh, that talent when he scored just under 39, uh, 39 points, I think it was. And this season, obviously, it wasn't there at the same, nearly the same level. So you're seeing more of his game. You've seen it at the NHL level. You see that he has all these tools, and it's just he needs the right coach to put him in the right position to succeed, and maybe Quinn is that guy. And they have three years to figure it out if uh, Shea isn't going to be that guy before the modified no-trade clause kicks in anyway. But if they signed him now, they're paying him through the rest of his prime. They're not stuck with him through his 30s like they were with Girardi, like they were with Stahl. I think they were, I think Stahl was 28, and I think Girardi was 30 when those contracts kicked in, which is the last thing you could possibly want. So you just got a piece of your defense there for a while. And even if he's a second pair defender, it's not the worst contract in the world. And if it doesn't work out, another team will probably be willing to take on that deal because he's young and the answer might just be a change of scenery. So you have options, but at least you didn't screw yourself three years down the road when you're supposed to be competitive again, and you need every drop of the cap space that you have. Yeah, it's it's tough to reconcile um, 
how vastly different the past two seasons have been for him. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, obviously, uh, usage and expectations and, and all that, uh, are playing a role here. And, and, you know, towards the end of their playoff run two years ago, um, I know it was in a bit more of a sheltered role, but him and, and Brendan Smith were, um, really really dominant together i thought and obviously last year you know his usage went up uh the difficulty of those minutes went up and and he struggled a little bit but you're right i mean the age is there the the physical tools with the skating are obviously there and i am a bit surprised that the money i know the cap is going up but the money came out to as much as it was because i i agree with you with the line of thinking that heading into the negotiations uh this is a type of player assuming that you know you are a fan of his skill set that you want him on your team moving forward that you go the long-term route just because um you know a couple years down the road here if you go the bridge route and all of a sudden he explodes and he puts up a lot of uh, counting stats and you have to pay him more you really run into that trouble with all these prospects we've been talking about uh exiting their rookie deals and all of a sudden you have to pay all those guys and you really have a financial logjam but I, i i i'm just kind of curious about how that went back and forth i'd love to know because it does feel like it is a bit of a gamble on their part. And it feels like for the most part that wasn't baked into this price they paid. And, and so I guess that's kind of the, the thing that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around and coming to terms with, because I do like the player. I would bet on him. I just thought that he had maybe played himself out of a little bit of money based on how last year went for him. No, I totally agree. I think both had leverage. He had the leverage of you don't have any defensive stability really. And you know, I, made it through last season he was one of the veteran defensemen somehow by the end of the year because it was just him and Stahl left and he's shown that he has those skills so he did have that leverage but on the other hand the team could have looked at it and said you weren't good last year yes your partners were changing constantly yes the system sucked yes the entire defense was bad but you were also bad and we can't forget that um he's still responsible for not having a good year as much as there was the environment around him that wasn't, you know, great or conducive to success, he was still bad. And they could have tried to lower it. And you look at the one I always compare to is Shane Gothsbury. You see it his rookie year, he was great. His second year, Hackstall put him in the press box a handful of games because uh, he didn't like aspects of of his game. And he got the long-term contract anyway right after that season. But I think it's only $4.5 or $4.6. <laughs> they could have given Shea that same deal and it, it would have been fine. But... Uh, I yeah, they're gambling on it, and hopefully it works out. Well, and and it was. I wonder how much this tied in as well. But you know, looking ahead, um, I believe three three years out, uh, Shea and Zabinajad, who will be an expiring at that point, are going to be the only players left on the team's books right now, and yeah. that is. It's both an exciting proposition and also a potentially alarming one because obviously uh, kind of clearing the deck and really, uh, you know, stripping the team of spare parts and bottoming them out is one thing. And that seems like it's probably pretty easy to do. But deciding who your uh, franchise's cornerstones are going to be and who you're going to build around and how you're going to support those guys with complementary skill sets is obviously the trick in the whole thing. And it's clear that they sort of determined that Shea would be one of those building blocks. So, I mean, I imagine that, you know, that, that obviously speaks very highly to um, what they see of him. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's now there's so much moving forward. There's so much, uh, you know, financial flexibility and also roster space 
for this for for Gordon to play with, and I'm very curious to see how they operate with that. Whether they um, use some of that remaining cap space to potentially take on a bad contract, like we heard rumored with Ryan Callahan, if a trade involving Eric Carlson happens, or whether you know they go another route. Like there's there's so many ways they can go about it here that could potentially be very constructive and very lucrative and it's just going to be a matter of time before we see if that's what they choose to operate or whether they try to kind of fast forward this thing and all of a sudden um erase a lot of this goodwill that they bought amongst us yeah um for the shay as the cornerstone of their defense i mean it makes sense why they choose him uh besides him you have neil pionk was really good at times last season uh ogara probably is not part of your long-term future D'Angelo has the skill there, but we have no idea what he'll actually become. There's so much to work on there. And you don't know how it's going to translate for any of your prospects, as highly touted as some of them may be. You have absolutely no idea how it's going to work out. So at least you have one figured out in Shea. And also, there's no no movement clause. There's no full no trade clauses and stuff like that to up the price in the term a little bit. So that's another thing to consider. But um. Yeah, I could definitely see them taking on a bad contract. I really thought they would have by now. I think Callahan would be a good example of someone to do. And I know they want more leadership in that room. They said towards the end of the season, the environment in the actual locker room wasn't great after some of their bigger name players, you know, weren't there. And obviously it hurt losing Girardi the year before. And Derek Stepan, too, is very vocal. So having someone like Callahan would be great, even though the cap hit is big and the contract's not great. And He's going to be in your bottom six at that cost, but he still brings something that'll help move this along and help lead those kids, which they're going to need within you know the next few years. And as much as there's some players who can play the leadership role in this roster, I'm not sure just how many there are. But I think that they've committed to the rebuild this far. And I think Carlson was probably the most tempting um, player that you could ask for on the market, really. And they stayed away from that. I don't know how much of it was because he didn't want to go to New York or because they didn't want to spend as much and really set themselves back in the future even more. So they weren't tempted with that, that I think they're saying we're doing this for real. We're sticking to this. But I do wonder if Panarin says, I want to come to New York, if maybe they pump the brakes on the rebuild and go, hold on, we could change to a real a retool real quick. Yeah, no, that's going to be that's going to be a good test. Obviously, it's it's one thing to. uh you know, when you're in the position they were this year to kind of say that you're going to be doing this thing, but then all of a sudden, if you get teased by a, a player like Panera and that's available, all of a sudden you might need to rethink things. And I think this is, it, it is going to take some time. I mean, I, I think that realistically, um, and that's why I guess when we started the show, we were talking about the transparency and how surprising it was that they did pen that letter to their fans. You know, we often don't see teams talk that way because it's it's not very palatable to openly admit to your fans that listen for the next two three years uh we don't really have very many intentions or belief that we're actually going to win you know that doesn't mean necessarily we're going to try to lose but we're going to give the young players an opportunity and we're probably going to stink but there's going to be growing pains and hopefully there's going to be um a reward for us at the end of the road and it does feel like that window here with some of those contracts as we as we talked about you know with Lundqvist aging out over time and with Mark Stahl's deal expiring and, and, and all of those players basically being off the books three years from now, it does feel like that's going to be kind of the crossroads point where they're going to have to make some critical decisions based on who they view as the cornerstones and which direction they want to go with building this, building this team out. 
Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do try to um, take things up a notch and have a team that's maybe a, maybe not a contender, but a playoff team for 2020-21 because that is Lundqvist last year. And yes, he'll be 38. And yes, he's still Lundqvist. And you can look around and see Luongo still doing it, even though the injuries have you know obviously slowed him down a bit. But that Lundqvist could still be doing it. And maybe he has Georgiev behind him at that point, who's He's 22 now, so he'll be 24 then. Or maybe it's uh, Igor Shashorkin, depending on how he comes over and how his game translates to the NHL. So you could have Lundqvist maybe playing 40% of the games or 50% of the games at that time with a solid team and hope that could be the year. And I I wouldn't blame them as long as it doesn't totally um, hurt their future after that. I wouldn't want them to make too many right now moves that it takes away from this process in any way. But I really wouldn't blame them if they said in the last year of Lundqvist's con- contract, we have to at least be a playoff team for him. Yeah, it's tough. Obviously, there is that uh, sentimental and emotional element to it. And based yep. on the career he's had and what he's meant to that organization, I, 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 it'd be very understandable that they would factor that into it. And, and listen, with him, I understand his age at that point and the miles he's going to have assuming he stays healthy over the next two years he's gonna have topped a thousand uh combined regular season and playoff games in the nhl and you know the workload and the age and you normally expect that a regular human being would not be as productive as as they are at this point but it feels like you know with him and luongo being the exceptions to the rule if you told me that three years from now they're still even like kind of slightly above league average or hovering around a 920 save percentage i'd be like well I, I have to believe it just based on how they've been proving everyone wrong for years now. So it's, 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 uh, I guess we'll see how that plays out. But if, if you told me Lundqvist will be able to still be, um, you know, at least an upper echelon goalie at that point, I, 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 I have to see him have a sustained stretch of really falling off and showing age related decline. And we've seen kind of inklings of it so far, but not anything sustained. Um, and I think he was better last year than his raw numbers indicate just based on how big of a clown show was in front of him. So I still do think he has a bit left in the tank and kind of balancing that and the end of his career um, and doing right by him versus everything we've talked about in the show so far with the young players coming in and this being a rebuilding phase, like is, is one of the more interesting subplots to me, how that plays out and who ultimately winds up winning out. Yeah. I mean, I have to think he'll still be, like you said, around league average, at least then. I mean, what goaltender on their 36th birthday is facing, I think it was 50 shots against and still, you know, winning the game and playing as well as he did. He was making unbelievable saves. I think, one of the saves he had could be, you know, one of his saves of the year. So two years from now, if he's still doing well, I, I really wouldn't be surprised. But I also think he needs to have a better team in front of him the next year. So it's not, you know, making him age quicker than he should, which uh, definitely could happen if he's facing another year, 40 shots on goal 12 times. I wonder, I mean, it might just be one of those things where, um, after he calls a quit and after he retires, people will look back more fondly on it. But it, it doesn't it feel like, and I don't know why it is, maybe it is because of some of those temper tantrums he throws sometimes or, <laughs> or, or, or the team he plays for, but it does feel like around the league, they're the, the opinion of him and sort of the career he's had and, and how great he really was hasn't really matched up to the actual numbers themselves, especially when you look a bit deeper beyond just the raw save percentage and you look at stuff like goal saved above average and workload and how he's managed to just 
you know, exceed all reasonable expectations in both of those fronts for, for years on end at such a volatile position. Um, I wonder what what the reason for that is. I don't know. Like, I, obviously, Rangers fans themselves hold him in high regard, but for the most part, it does feel like the discourse around him is a bit off. Yeah, I, I mean, there are even Ranger fans who aren't aren't Lundqvist fans, the fans that were clamoring for Talbot to stay or even well, Ron. There's to this stay. idea that he 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 falters in the postseason, which is unequivocally not true. Oh yeah, I mean, they're 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 the most success they've had in the Lundqvist era was 2014, and it was to the Stanley Cup final, and they would have. They wouldn't have gotten close to that if it wasn't for Lundqvist. There's absolutely no doubt it was all Lundqvist that that postseason, if he was scoring goals, they would have won a uh, Stanley Cup too, but there was only so much he could do. But there's definitely that feeling among some that you can't call him a king because he doesn't have a Stanley Cup, even though he has, you know, the championships at other levels and he's accomplished so much and how quickly he's done it. He's a Hall of Famer, there's no doubt, but it would be nice if it's not a Hall of Famer with an asterisk that he's never won a cup. And I think until he wins that, you're going to keep hearing that. Yeah, it's um, I was looking at the numbers today when I was doing some preparation for the show and, and that sort of five or six year peak he had there from about, I guess, 08 to like uh, 2014 or so uh, was just it was staggering. Uh, you know, in all, all situations, he, he had saved like 30 goals uh, above average twice uh, 25 three other times that lockout shortened season in 2012 2013 uh, it was only a 43 game sample but he was just absurd and I think that the um, the biggest sort of praise you can give him or the biggest compliment you can give him and we saw a bit of this with Carey Price in Montreal a few years ago and you see it around the league with great goalies um, you know the blessing and a curse of having a great goalie like that is they mask so many of your flaws and really kind of lull you to sleep or trick you into believing that the team is better than it actually is. And then whenever they have any sort of hiccup or start to decline even a little bit, things just come crashing down like a house of cards. And we have seen that with Lundqvist and the Rangers and just all those years, especially under Alain Mignot, where they were asking him to do superhuman things based on their counterattacking style and how often they were hanging out to dry with breakaways and two on ones and three on twos and him stepping up to the task and performing admirably is just um it's something that you, you you look back at and you just marvel at how the level he was able to play at and for how long he was able to sustain it yeah he he definitely is i would say you could still argue he's one of the best in in the league right now and i know obviously his his play right now isn't the same as it was in his prime but what he's done over his career it really is amazing and even now, and I think this is where some of the complaints do stem from, is uh, fans don't like when he overcompensates for the team. And you saw it in games. I know there was one against Tampa, and it was after the deadline, where he was going behind the net, uh, the net to retrieve the puck when he really had no business doing that, but no one else was around, and then he'd get the hook. And there was, I believe it was that game, maybe it was one right after that, maybe against Ottawa, where he stared, you know, it looked like he was staring the coaching staff down after he was pulled from a game, and he said it afterwards there's only so much you could do in these games and I'm trying when no one else is there to help. And I'm trying to do, you know, everything myself, but to see that he reacts so negatively to him being pulled or to a goal being allowed there. And he has such strong reactions. It makes, um, it, I guess it amplifies when a mistake is made. And so many people are so quick to call that mistake out. Yeah. And I guess, um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think that um, all that excellence kind of 
you know, I spoiled people a little bit. The Ranger is why they missed the postseason seven straight years before he arrived. And then prior to last year, they'd only missed the postseason once, I believe, during that stretch that he's been with yep. the Rangers. So it's, it's, and it was the year they obviously lost in the, in the shootout, um, in the final day of the season and the team they lost to made it all the way to Stanley Cup final. So yeah, it's this, it's been this sustained run of excellence, you know, making it to two conference finals and a third, uh, where they made it all the way to a cup final in 2014, 15. So it, it, it spoils you a little bit, but it feels like, um, you know, this is sort of the cyclical nature of the sport and the fact that the New York Rangers have been able to remain, competitive or at least in the fringe for this long is is one thing and now it's kind of it it might be a few years that's just how the sport works where you have to kind of have to take the ups and downs and and that's how it works yeah um all right shana let's uh let's get out of here plug some stuff what are you, what are you working on these days i know you've been uh you've been churning out content on the athletic quite a bit but uh let, let people know where they can find you and follow you online okay um for the athletic i'll have something friday actually on pavel buchnevich and not just Ooh, there about we go season. there we go yeah and I'm, I'm definitely gonna look at more than just he was on the fourth line he wasn't good but what he needs to do to put it all together as well because you know there's still the onus is on him so i'll have that and i think the rest of the summer i'm gonna look at some expectations for players and try to dive into a, what we hope to see from names like zabanajad or Kreider, and uh eventually something on hockey graphs about taxes there we go. Well, that's uh, wow. That's uh, that's pretty topical. I feel like uh, we've spent a lot of time on Twitter these the, the past handful of months. I feel like uh, talking about taxes. So I'm, I'm curious to see what your conclusion is. Have you started working on that piece yet? Yeah, it's it's like ninety percent done, and I've just been stuck on the Canadian tax aspect of it because that is so out of my realm. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm really excited to check that out, and obviously, I will definitely be clicking and reading the uh, Pavel Buchnevich piece, and I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I appreciate you taking the time to finally come chat. It's going to be a uh, it's going to be an exciting time for 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 Rangers fans that at least are able to kind of take a step back and take a longer term approach and outlook on this team because assuming things play out correctly and they take it slowly and handle handle their business the correct way there's a lot of reason for optimism i feel like a good blueprint for this is what happened with the toronto maple leafs over the past handful of years and obviously winning the lottery and getting an austin matthews helps expedite that process but there there is a blueprint there where in a bigger market with a lot of financial firepower if you can combine the timing and make it all work you can really have something special totally agree Awesome. Well, uh, we'll have you back on next season for sure. And uh, until then, enjoy the rest of your summer and we'll, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Mm-hmm.